Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network, where we take a closer look each week at the wide, weird, and wonderful world of running. I'm your host, Jonathan Ellsworth. I'm also the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Off the Couch is presented by CBG Trails. The CBG Trails app is the only complete trail map app of Crested Butte and the Gunnison Valley, Colorado. So download the app today and start exploring. Sanjay Rawal was our very first guest on Off the Couch, and I am very pleased to have him back on for our very first episode of 2020. Now, the primary reason I invited him back on was to ask about his rather spectacular performance and even more spectacular meltdown near the end of the California International Marathon, aka SIM, this past year. But in addition to getting a fantastic firsthand account of that race, we touch on a number of important topics that go way beyond some race report. Sanjay talks about the concepts of running dumb, training slow, finding joy through exertion, and whether it is possible to run a great time by not caring about running a great time. We also talk about the urban roots of ultra running, Sanjay's latest film project, the future of podcasts, and more. I assure you there is an abundance of food for thought packed into this episode, so it might be a good idea to listen to this one more than once. And with that, here we go. Well, Sanjay, you were the first guest we ever had on Off the Couch, and now you are our first guest of this new year and this new decade. How does that make you feel? Well, I, I have to ask you a question. Like, what, what's, your, what's your prediction? Are we still going to be all gung-ho about podcasts in 2029, or... Is this going to be the decade where podcasts die? I'm going to go with they will be an even bigger thing 10 years from now, though I definitely think there will be a calling of the herd. Everybody seems, it's like, oh, I'm a content maker, so I've got to fire up a podcast. And I think that a lot of folks will experiment with it, a lot of big corporations will experiment with it and then decide it's maybe not worth our time or money or something or other. But um, as a medium, I think this will be a definitely a bigger in terms of number of people listening to podcasts around the world will be up in 10 years. That is my prediction. So I, I'm going to throw something at you and we can we can revisit it December 31st. 2029. Perfect. I think there's going to be, like you said, a huge consolidation. All the big industry, all the big media companies are going to jump into things. And I'm going to predict that Off the Couch will be a production of Fox News in 2029. (laughs) That you and Brendan, right now, you guys are like, you guys are like avatars of like independence in the outdoor realm. You guys are going to sell out to the man. (laughs) And we're all we're all going to hate you, but not because you sold out, but because you guys will be like podcast billionaires. <laughs> That's my prediction. This, so is, like, like, this is not your prediction. I gave you an honest one. You gave me a funny one, where like I ended up in like a I'm 
would be like in a three-piece suit and shiny shoes talking to you right now, as opposed to the hoodie that I've been wearing for like five days in a row. But your question, I think, was more about will podcasts have grown as a genre or will there be kind of a pullback? Well, I I love it because it's like for like a random dude like me, this is like my only chance to like feel relevant in the world. So like right now at the beginning of 2020, I think I feel more relevant than I've ever felt this decade. Oh, that's great. I'm glad you're feeling relevant. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, will this be a bigger genre or a contracting genre? God, think about 2010. Like what was gigantic in 2010? Like I think I was still getting DVDs from Netflix. Yeah. I mean, it's like lights out, totally different. So, you know, and everybody also thought that VR would be the biggest thing by the end of the decade. It's obviously not. So like we're podcasting now and it might be such an anachronism to look back in in 10 years and go like, remember those dudes that did a podcast that I thought was super cool and how many podcasts we all listen to? But like, dang, that was so lame. Like now all we're doing is taking like a pill or whatever. <laughs> Podcasts will be replaced by pills. Yeah. It's like I could just in the morning, maybe I get a fresh delivery of pills once a week. And then on those pills, like one will be like off the couch conversation with Sanjay, you know, edition number 600 assuming we've had 600 conversations, you know, in the next decade. And then I just pop the pill and effectively it just sort of mainlines the information from the conversation. That's like some Philip K. Dick stuff right there. Well, it's, it's close. Cause like, like I live in New York, but like I've spent New Year's in Venice, California with a couple of friends and we were on our way to lunch yesterday, just walking towards Abbott Kinney Boulevard, like the capital of hipsterdom. And um, we, we passed by a little clinic that was offering like instant B12 shots. Went in and got them. And afterwards we were like, shoot, like, why do we need lunch? Like, this was basically lunch. Let's forget it. Like, that's all we need. You know, it's like lunch in Venice is just getting a vitamin B12 and a vitamin D shot and calling that uh, it. My goodness. All right. Well, I look forward to early January 2029 when we can revisit all of this. You're definitely right about, like, we could just be on to a totally new medium. And I am going to sound real conservative here for a second and say that I don't think that we will have gone the way of, like, the DVD. Though, in a way, I I don't really care about that because that's just the package, right? Like, movies didn't die, right? Like, the same, technically the same movies we would watch on DVD, we'd now just stream, So in that sense, like if there's a slightly different format for genuine conversation, I would say I think the biggest hurdle or potential obstacle to great conversation um, or genuine conversation happening 10 years from now is has more to do with the state of like geopolitics and whether countries will still be around. But I I don't think genuine conversation, authentic conversation is going to be dead in 10 years. I'm, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. I mean, we obviously we, we, we woke up to a, a very bright and shining January 1st and yeah. even sort of woke up to a bright and shining January 2nd. But now that we're on January 3rd, we're realizing that it's going to be a struggle to even like make it out of this decade. 
is so much that just kind of blew up in our faces in the last like 24 hours that it's like, wow, with, with, with geopolitics, with climate change, like, are we going to survive? Um, but at, at the same time, like, you know, we, we chatted about this, like before we went online, like every spiritual teacher from time immemorial has said that world peace or like even regional peace before anybody had an idea about the scope and, and size of the world, that peace is only going to be achieved when individuals get their acts together. And, you know, Utan, the kind of not, not very well known, but, you know, kind of pivotal third secretary general of the UN said, you know, war, war is made in the mind of men. And, and that's the place where, where war must be, war, war must be um, ended. And I'm paraphrasing that. But in this decade, it's like, yeah, we have to be cognizant of our, of our impact. But maybe for once we can realize that, like, we are the problem. And our minds are the problem, our desires are the problem, our insecurities are the problem, and like, how do we get our acts together? And running, running outdoors, it's like, God, there's no better way to like, feel good and connected and understand why we need to care about our impact than going out and spending a great day, you know, running or skiing or biking. So the other thing to say here is, my last like long conversation with you was, I think this past May, and we met up in Williamsburg. And so part of this, I'm, I'm glad we're using this as an opportunity to catch up. But there are a couple of things that I wanted to ask you about that happened sort of since I saw you in May and, you know, between then and the end of the year. One of those things then is when, when Brendan and I talked to you for the first time on Off the Couch, you were uh, kind of in the process of talking about um, and promoting this film 3100. If people didn't hear that first episode, talk a little bit about what is this film. And I'm just kind of curious to hear about how the rest of your year went as you were going around and showing the film and talking to a whole lot of people about it, etc. So the, 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 the process of, of making the film and even talking about the film has totally changed the way I approach running. In a nutshell, the film 3100 Run and Become, which is now available on Amazon Prime streaming, um, really looks at the world's longest ultra-distance multi-day race, which is called the Self-Transcendence 3100 Miler. It takes place, of all places, in the heart of Queens, New York City, around a half-mile loop. People are required to run 59.8 miles a day, at least, to finish the race within the allotted 52-day time frame. And people might say like, oh, it's crazy. Like, why would you run around in a circle? For those who have run long distances on roads, like multi-day races or trying to run from San Francisco to New York, you've got to deal with mountain ranges. You've got to deal with cars. You've got to deal with massive sets of mountains. But once you eliminate the logistical issues of, of the pain that you feel when you're doing those types of races, you can actually unlock a place within yourself where running actually becomes a pathway to enlightenment where you actually learn to find bliss within those ultra ultra distance events and that bliss negates the types of pain you might feel from pavement pounding and heat the the, the film goes into why and how this is possible not through expert interviews but going to the very few traditional running cultures that still exist and you know, the famous one are the Taharamara Indians and northern Mexico, but, you know, we spent time on the Navajo Nation with the Kalahari Bushmen, 
and with this esoteric sect of monks in the highlands of Kyoto, Japan, uh, affectionately or infamously known as the Marathon Monks. And we interweave like these stories of the traditional way of, of approaching running primarily as a vehicle to achieve unity with the divine, looking at running as the first religion of, of humanity back when we became bipedal creatures on the savannah uh, to kind of the, the, the traditional running cultures of the Southwest, where running literally is a way to pray to Mother Earth with our feet, to breathe in Father Sky, to, to show the divine, to show the holy people that you know, we want their blessings and we're willing to work for those blessings. So in a nutshell, you know, the, 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 the crux of the 3,100-mile film and the crux of my understanding of traditional running cultures is the idea of finding joy through exertion. And from a Western sports perspective, exertion, pushing oneself, is a means to an end. It's a way to get a better time. It's a way to, to achieve something concrete. But very few of us, myself in particular, with a, with a track and running background, I never thought I could actually enjoy a race or enjoy those moments where we're pushing ourselves to the limit. And the idea of finding happiness in that physical exertion seemed like a misnomer. But traditional sporting cultures from the Spartan to the Hopi and Navajo have all said the opposite that we learn about ourselves not through pushing through barriers but to but in finding bliss and peace and satisfaction in those acts of extreme exertion totally changed the way i looked at running and i, I had a kind of a, a a very good race at the end of december as an old man as a 45 year old kind of putting all those principles to the test very good recap and i if people haven't seen the film yet I highly encourage them to go check it out. Um, it's also, by the way, just kind of interesting to me, especially as we think about trail ultras, it's kind of keeps coming up where we, it's like, oh, we've got 200 mile trail races. And then, you know, the Moab 240, you know, which I was at this year. And then it's like, oh, there's rumblings of a 300 miler coming up. And it's kind of just, I don't know, slightly interesting to be like, oh, wow, we might start a 300 miler. And it's like, guys, we're running 3000 miles. Well, this, this is the interesting thing that, you know, ultra distance running came out of marathon subculture. You know, it's hard to imagine, but in the 60s and early 70s, marathoning was counterculture. These were all the crazy people that just wanted to get to a state of mind that you can only really get by you know training 70, 80, 90, 100, 120 miles a week. But when marathoning exploded, these folks were like, hey, marathoning is fun, but we need more distance. And the, the father of the New York City Marathon, an African-American man named Ted Corbett, uh, a 1952 US Olympic marathoner, was the pioneer there. And he said, like, let's, let's put together 50 milers, 100 milers. And this mo these movements came in urban cities. They didn't really come from, from the mountain cities. And so the, the early 50s and 100s you know, that were popular were on pavement. And by the 80s, people were like, I can do 100. I can do 200 miles. I want to see how, how much I can do in six days, in 10 days. I want to do 1,000 miles. I want to do 1,300 miles 
which was the trajectory towards the 3100. But curiously, you know, we can say approximately 20 years ago, uh, trail running kind of began this renaissance. And, you know, people wanted to, to push limits on trails. It's obviously logistically way more difficult when you're spread across 100 miles in the mountains as opposed to doing like 100 one-mile loops. Um, but now it's like, now, now that people have really dialed these 100-milers and 24-hour and races where people are doing, you know, you know, massive amounts of elevation, that population, the counterculture, you know, in, in, in many ways is saying like, hey, let's push the distances. So we're seeing this parallel track and trail running that, you know, happened in the, in the, in the urban and kind of pavement driven um, running world in the 70s and 80s. And one of these days, the, the, the two will, will converge and there might be some crazy race of like, you know, let's see who can run the most mi- miles across three weeks on the Pacific Crest Trail or something. Well, speaking of marathons, another big reason that I wanted to get you back on off the couch uh, is because you had a very, let's say, eyebrow-raising experience at the California International Marathon in Sacramento. And I honestly was like, I just want to talk to Sanjay and get the kind of firsthand report on this. Do you mind telling us a bit about that race and when it was? Let's start there. For sure. And this, this, is, a, this is all a little embarrassing because you, you have such incredible runners on your podcast. And like this particular experience time-wise was like middle of the ground, like middle of the pack kind of like, but good old man time. So I'm, I'm just putting that preface out there <laughs> no. that like, I'm not Ryan Hall, you know, I'm not like, you know, like Jim Walmsley going to try to run a sub 210 at Olympic trials or anything like that. This is not pro level stuff, but I think there's, there's something in here that can be applied to all of the other amateurs out there listening to the podcast. You know, I, I, I used to be a runner in, in, in high school and a little bit in college, primarily track. Um, never really had any idea of what a marathon was like. But when I moved to New York in the 90s to study with the Indian teacher Sri Chinmoy, he was the founder of the 3100-mile race, and he was really into marathons. I ran a couple of really terrible marathons. Um, and, you know, as, as, as time progressed, I thought my, my running um, history was going to be well in my rearview mirror. Uh, but then in 2015, when I started making 3100 Run and Become, and began to realize that I could actually enjoy training in a way that I never thought was possible, that I could enjoy the grind, and that more importantly, that type of grind could be used for personal transformation, the way I look at meditation and contemplative practices. That's when my perspective on running began to shift. So I made the movie, talked about running, you know, ad nauseum for a year, and you know, at the beginning of 2019, I was like, you know, I've seen so many great aspects of running from the most spiritual side to the most competitive side that I, I really need to put my money where, where my mouth is. And I need to see if I can apply all these things that I'm yapping about to my own life. Um, I, was, I was lucky that I, w- I was able to get a, a, a great coach, uh, Patty Dillon, uh, who ran as Patty Catalano in the 70s and 80s, Nike's first female-sponsored athlete, top American marathoner, former world record holder across a host of distances, 
um, spanning the 10K to the marathon, uh, placed second in Boston three years in a row. She became my coach and she's Native American and really has the same perspective of trying to achieve happiness and becoming a better person through running, which she feels conversely will help people achieve the best times possible. So I, I started the year with zero expectation coming from this, this realm of mental fluidity where I was going to put in the work and in, in, the, in the words of, of an Indian spiritual master, Krishna from the Bhagavad Gita, you know, I, was, I, I felt like I had the right to act, but not to the fruits thereof, um, which is kind of a classic tenet of, 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 of Hindu philosophy. And so the idea was for the first time in my life, can I run the best by not wanting to run the best? You know, can I run a great time by totally not caring about running a great time? Can I put myself into a state of mind where anything is possible, where I'm not my own worst enemy? So fast forward to December 8th, um, the California International Marathon, Sacramento, which is kind of like the last chance for the, the whole realm of great American sub-elite marathoners to try to achieve an Olympic trials qualifying time. Now that wasn't me, but that means there's, there's a whole pack of men who are trying to do sub 219. There's a whole pack of women trying to do sub 245. Now there, there's no like elite, elite men trying to do like 208, 207, 206. There's no women that are doing like 221, 222, but there's a crap load of people, men between 214 and 219, a crap load of women between like 2.30 and 2.45. And incidentally, that means that as a 2.30 marathoner, there's a lot of people that are within striking distance. So like if you're in New York or, or, or in, in Boston, if you're running like 2.27, 2.28, you could kind of be running on your own. But at Sim, there's a ton of people behind you just on your heels. So the, this heels. There's a ton of people ahead of you. I mean, as opposed to those other majors, if you're running a 208 at Sim, you're like, you know, you've got a five minute lead on, on the number two person. So that, that said, it's a super exciting race where a lot of people, uh, you know, know that they can achieve personal bests, whether they're 230, 330. Um, so that, that said, I, I, I took off well, and I, I was you know, averaging 546 miles through the first 20 miles, exactly. And that said, I have to tell people that I, I didn't run 546 pace um, more than four workouts the entire year. Like Patty Dillon's philosophy, which was from the, the Arthur Lydiard, Bill Rogers school was, you have to do a ton of slow miles that you make your gains on the easy days that you might do one hard day every two weeks but the easy days are where you make progress which is kind of contrary to the way we we think about running um it's like running slow is going to make you run fast um but it's it's the frame of mind knowing that like i put in so many miles i've i've, I've exhausted myself so much that like i can dig deep and be in a place of discomfort for 26 miles and, and that's where that adage comes in, where it's like in that place of discomfort, can I enjoy it? And if I can enjoy it, I can lengthen it. And if I can lengthen it, I can do well across 26 miles. So that said, like I was doing really well through 20, 21 miles. 
my, my main mistake in this race was logistics, where I'd never practiced grabbing a cup off of a volunteer's palm running at 545, 550 um, per mile pace, which means in all practicality that I was basically knocking glasses of water out of the hands of volunteers and splashing them more than I was getting water into my mouth. So across 20 miles, I might have taken in four sips of water, which is not a good recipe to uh, finishing a race. So I, I, I wouldn't say I ever hit the proverbial wall. Um, I had a couple of tough miles between 21 and 22, but uh, going through 23, 24, 25, I was still at 233, 234 pace. I, I, I was only dropping 10 to 15 seconds per mile, but somewhere in that realm at about mile 23, I realized something was seriously wrong inside me that like I was like my organs were cooking and it was literally uh, the idea that this is about survival. I mean, I've, I've run ultras, I've run marathons and yeah, there are points in races where you do hit the wall where your body is struggling to get energy, you're bonking. But here I was like, in this brain fog that people might achieve in ultras for sure, like in 100 milers, where you go like, I don't have the nutrients, I don't have the water, and you start like blacking out, which shouldn't happen in a marathon at all. It, I mean, it's dumb to even talk about it. But at mile 25, I realized like, I might not finish this marathon. And I lost three minutes from mile 26 to mile 26.2. Like I look at pictures that were taken and I was like one of those memes um, of, of like Ironman uh, finishers, like the people that are just wobbling, you know, and are moving more laterally side to side towards the finish shoot. And I literally collapsed with about 100 feet to go. And I saw EMTs coming towards me and something in me just popped me right back up. And I said, I am going to finish this race. Um, no one's going to help me. I need, I, I deserve to have a good time. So I, I crossed in 237, 44, which is, you know, six minute and a half a second pace. Um, but I lost a full three minutes in that last 300 meters. Um, but that said, it's like, you know, I, I, I didn't have a, I hadn't had a Boston qualifying time, um, which is 308 for my age group, 45 to 49. And it was such a good old man time in the, in the realm of Boston that I actually got an invite um, and a waiver to, to run Boston on April 20th. So, you know, it, it, at, the, it, at the end of it, it was an epic achievement for me time-wise, but it was even better for me as a learning experience saying, if I've got zero expectation, if I run from my heart, if I try to channel happiness, joy, bliss, while at the same time pushing myself to my limit, I can actually have a better result than if I train with a specific time in mind. First of all, you mentioned bonking, right? And like, that's an experience where I definitely feel like, yep, I just bonked on that run or that bike ride or whatever. You're saying that is not what this felt like. I, imagine getting to a state on a run or on a bike ride where the, the next step is passing out and, and you're trying to fight from passing out. That was my last 7K. That was my last four miles. It wasn't just like, oh my God, I feel wrecked. Like, I want to stop. I want to stop. I want to stop. 
it was like um, something is seriously wrong inside me. And the practical thought was like, if I stop at mile 23, you know, there's no EMTs here. You know, I'm, I'm going to like pass out in the middle of nowhere. Like I have to make it to the medical tent at the finish line. Um, for me, it felt, it felt more like an expedition where it's like, it's like, I have got to get down to like this particular city because if, if I lose it here in the mountains, like that's it for me. Like there's not, it's like the rescue is going to happen because I'm in a city, not on a mountain, but it's like, it's going to be better for me or more or less detrimental if I can get to the medical tent sooner rather than later. And, you know, when I got into medical and they started giving me water, you know, I, I ended up solidly puking for the next 20 minutes, like just puking my guts out where like every, everything inside me was like, you did something terrible to yourself and you know like my your my body made me pay for it um all, all i could think of and, and i i would suggest this to all race directors out there i was begging for a coca-cola because i i i knew that that would replenish liquid the high, the carbonation would suit my stomach it would replenish calories but you know we're in this day where everything is like organic and like you know, super low sugar. And so they were giving me like fluids, but it was like the only fluid that would have helped was Coke or, I mean, I, I'm, I don't drink, but I, I was almost going to go raid the Sierra Nevada um, like <laughs> expo thing that I could see where I was like, well, it's like, I need the calories, but is the alcohol going to kill me? Yeah. I was, I was on that verge. But, but, but yeah, so it, it was like, I've, I've bonked plenty of times on runs where I was like, I've, I had to stop at a 7-Eleven and eat a slushy or a Slurpee, you know, been on runs with Brendan where it's like, you need to have a slice of pizza. You need to have this or that. Um, otherwise you, you're going to have to like, like hop in a cab or call somebody to pick you up. But this was like medical emergency level weirdness. How long after the race how many days or weeks did it take you to get back to feeling, I don't know, I guess a hundred percent? Well, so th this is the weird thing that we all experience with races. And I only began to understand it this time around because I've, I'm in that realm where as a, as a 45 year old, I have to get a lot of wacky therapy every month. Wacky therapy. Well, yeah, like, you know, I, I go to a, a, Buddha, a Buddhist monk in New York City who's an expert, like Rolfer, you know, fascia guy, um, stuff like that. And, and you know, after a, a really big experience where you've both hit a low and a high at the same time, um, like a, a physical low and then a, like a spiritual high, there's so, there are so many residual hormones in your body um, like adrenaline first and foremost. So for the first two weeks, I was just like, I can't wait to train again. I got the, the invite from Boston and I was on top of the world. And then I just crashed. And, and my, 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 my Rolfer, God, it's not such a bougie term. My Rolfer <laughs> was like, you have to take four days off where you don't do a damn thing. So, you know, if, if for all of us, it's like slowing down is a spiritual discipline because nobody slows down. Like you know, the, the Kenyans make fun of American runners saying that like when Kenyans have downtime, they're in the middle of the mountains. They don't have internet. They're not watching Netflix. They're just sitting on a cot reading a book or just sitting on a cot visualizing. 
Whereas in America, it's like in our downtime between two workouts, like we're going to Costco, we're on the internet, you know, we're like catching up on taxes. Um, so it's like the, the, the therapist was like, you need four days where you just watch movies, like sit on your butt, drink water, and that's it. And that's when I started crawling out of like the pain cave. Um, and I'm, I'm back. I'm like, you know, now ready mentally and physically, you know, to start getting into um, a big training cycle and, you know, kind of contemplating what I want 2020 to look like in terms of personal resolutions, physical resolutions, et cetera. Back to some specifics of this, this sim race. You're talking about like, I wanted to see how well I could run, how fast I could run if I didn't care about running a great race. You're telling me that you truly didn't have a kind of time goal in mind? That's exactly right. Now, you know, I, 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 I've raced a lot, track and other stuff. And, and I think that this is applicable to to anybody who's raced from amateurs to pros and having spent a lot of time with pros, you know, obviously people can imagine that when you race, there's a big component of keeping your nerves. And, you know, that that sense of nervousness leads to an elevated heart rate. And that means your heart is working very inefficiently. And so a big part about running, and the Kenyans say this, is, is running dumb. You don't want your mind to be your enemy. You don't want your nervous system to elevate your heart rate. You need to have controlled breathing, even when you're pushing the limits of your physical body. So, in, in the, and, and, and uh, uh, the, the corollary to that, uh, nervousness is fear. Um, it's fear from fear of running your own race, fear of, of missing the moment to move, fear of going out too fast or going out too slow. And that actually saps the body of, uh, of, of energy, elevates the heart rate, gets the adrenaline to a kind of an uncontrollable state. So running calm is critical. But at the same time, and, and I, I should give credit where credit's due, this Hopi elder um, on the Hopi Nation in Arizona, a guy named Rex Taliam Tewa, he was the one who told me once, find joy through exertion. And the Hopi are some of the, the most prolific runners in America. Their high school have won like the Arizona State cross-country title, like 23 of the last 24 years. Some of America's best distance runners, like the, the, the bronze medalist in the 1910 Stockholm Games came from the Hopi Nation. They are killer runners you know, br- brutal sense of competition, but a deep sense, a deep ability to pull energy, literally pull energy from Mother Earth and from the air to push themselves to, to realms that are superhuman. Um, and, and these are the folks that have the mantra in their own language, but translated, find joy through exertion. So like this idea of running happy, is like, you know, the Brooks adage, which is great, is like the, 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 the scratching the surface. It's like, can you run happy while your body is like screaming? And can you use that happiness to calm your body down, to give it the kind of confidence and self-control it needs to like remain at 7,000 RPM uh, redlining for two and a half hours? So in in this race, I was like, I'm going to redline. And number one, if I'm going to redline, I'm going to not worry about it because as soon as I start worrying about it, I'm not going to redline. Uh, I'm going to like, you know, stall. Um, number two, it's like, 
can I really enjoy the fact that I'm going to be running as hard as I have this year? Like I, I went through 10 miles in 58.06, which was, you know, it's not anywhere near a, a, a sub-elite time, but it, it was faster than I did 10 miles in any workout this year. I, I went through the second 10 miles in 58.07, which, you know, was the second fastest I'd done 10 miles. The first fastest was the first 10 miles I did in the race. So it's like I'm, I'm, I'm running, you know, I, I did some good speed work in the year, but again, four or five interval sessions across nine months, killer ones, but like, you know, big deal. And so, but in, in this race, I was like, I have the confidence in my legs. I have the confidence in my heart. I feel really good. I feel really happy. I feel really in control. And I'm going to have a great race just because of the enjoyment that I'm getting from pushing my performance. And I, I, I feel like, you know, in all honesty, like, this was just nine months of training after like a 10 year hiatus from any sort of real training. And despite being 45 years old, I know I'm just scratching the surface. Like I didn't do the workouts that I needed to do. Like I had, didn't have the base I needed. And now going into Boston in April and maybe looking at doing SIM again in December, 2020, I'm really excited. It's like, you know, I, I think I can, I can definitely, you know, break 230, hit 225 lower within the next two or three years. I'm not killing myself with expectations. Like I need to do that this year, but looking out two or three years, it's like, I, I feel like I can do better than I did in my twenties. So you are intending to run Boston. I mean, that's already part of your 2020 plans. Yeah. Like I, I, after I did sim, I was thinking like, I, I'm, I'm in better shape now aerobically than I've, I've been in a decade. I'm like, yeah, my legs are dead, but across the next month of recovery, I'm not going to, I'm like, I'm not going to lose my aerobic conditioning. Like that stuff actually takes a long time to drift away. Um, so it's like, can I build on that in a smart way without overdoing or overtraining? And then when, when the Boston opportunity came across my inbox, I was like, this is great. Like that's four months and, and I can get in another really good set of, of training cycles. And I, like the Boston course profile is weirdly similar to SIM. You know, SIM is very hilly, but whereas Boston has a couple additional hills, you know, after mile 21, um, SIM basically flattens out. So like the training I did for SIM is very applicable to, to Boston. I just have to take it up a notch. I'd be interested to get like just a couple of details of like, what is your training looking like? Have you already taken it up a notch? Are you kind of on a trajectory to start doing that? Are you doing any indoor miles? Is all of your mileage outside? You know, we're here in some, a cold time of the year uh, in New York. So tell me about what that's looking like. I, number, number one, like I, I can't get the same spiritual benefit running on a treadmill. Um, like the the like our Navajo character in in thirty one hundred run and become says you know when when you run your feet are praying to Mother Earth, you're breathing in Father Sky, you're asking them for their blessings, you're showing them that you're willing to work for those blessings. When you make a connection to the ground and to the sky, you will not only become a champion, you'll become a warrior. And you know this this fellow Sean Martin, a champion ultra runner, 
his dad's a medicine man and his dad told me like look mother earth is under the asphalt as well so like this isn't just an experience you get in a canyon you can get this on the streets and i have a really difficult time although i know it's not impossible i have a really difficult time kind of connecting to that flow when the first thing my eyes see on a treadmill are numbers i mean yeah i run with a watch i run with i i, I I'm, I'm all about strava but I don't look at the watch. I don't care what the watch says. But on a treadmill, it's like I'm always looking at the pace. I'm always looking at the numbers. And I, I can't dissociate from my mind if I've got that reality in front of me. So yeah, I, I train outdoors. But you know, the, the, the thing I didn't do well in this last year of training, uh, despite my, my coach Patty's admonishments, she, w- she was saying like, you're not running slow enough. And she sent me, you know, quotes by Elliot Kipchoge, the sub two hour marathoner. Like on his slow days, he's running 940 per mile pace. I mean, this is a guy that that is, is running 430, sub 437 times 26.2. And so, but I, I had this nervousness because all of us on Strava are looking at each other's times or comparing each other's. We've got this like insecurity that we're being judged by how fast we need to go um, or we're being like, judged because we're, we're running too slow but I, I wasn't running slow enough last year um and now i'm saying like my slow is going to be slow i've got enough confidence now because i logged that like good old man time in december that i can really just trust the plan and trust myself and that on race day because of like you know our, our spiritual background I, i'm not i'm not going to be rickety i'm not going to be nervous I'm going to be able to pull from my heart. I'm going to be able to feel my feet on Mother Earth. I'm going to be able to get energy and confidence and inspiration through my breath. And I'm going to be in that, I'm going to seek and try to be in that flow state for as much of the race as I can. You know, we, we, we've got this kind of brand new shiny definition in 20th, 21st century kind of physiology of what a flow state is. And flow state is not the absence of pain, but it's finding a way to to be happy, to enjoy yourself in that in that that state of pushing the absolute physical envelope. But this goes back to like a 6,000, 7,000 year old Hopi adage, you know, finding joy through exertion. And so in 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 Boston, it's like my my goal is, you know, not not a time, but again, it's like like what Krishna said to Arjuna, you have to you, you have the right to act but not to the fruits thereof. So I can act, I can push myself, I can enjoy it, and then let the experience carry me to whatever time that the, there is, you know, at the end of this, uh, at the end of this uh, journey. I, I can't control that, you know. I, I can, I, I can't control that at all. Um, I all I ha- all I have control of is myself in any given moment. So when you're talking about running slow and training slow and you've told us that at sim i believe you said the first 10 miles and then your second 10 miles that was all happening and happening at around a 545 546 mile pace do i have that right yes I, I, i was you know doing those splits kind of like clockwork so if you're going out on a I don't know, five mile run, eight mile run, 10 mile run. What kind of pace would we be looking at for you 
that would fall into this proper category of running slow? So the, the kind of grandfather of, of this style was an Australian named Arthur Lydiard, who, who very simply said, like, I'm fast at 100 meters, but why do I slow down across 800 meters? Why do I slow down across a mile, five miles, 10 miles, 26 miles? It's not that I don't have speed. You've got speed. You just don't have the endurance. And so his whole concept was like, how do we increase mitochondrial efficiency? And he realized before the physiology had caught up to the, the practice that you, you achieve a greater density of mitochondria, you achieve better mitochondrial activity, better energy transfer through really, really slow running and by putting in a lot of miles. It's like is, endurance is ability to run longer, not run faster, that's speed. So his whole school was kind of exported to Boston in the 70s through a coach named Billy Squires, who was Bill Rogers' coach, ended up being Alberto Salazar's coach. You know, Patty Dillon ran with the Greater Boston Track Club. Um, and the Greater Boston Track Club, I think in like the 1980 Boston Marathon, had five of the top 10 places. They were an absolute force to be reckoned with. And it was this idea that our fast miles are going to be super fast. Our slow miles are going to be super slow. That, that's translated to a philosophy now that's called 80-20 running, that you shouldn't do more than 20% of your mileage across a week fast. And, and that might be like, you know, half of a workout might be fast, half of it might be slow. But at the same time, there should be no medium pace. Like the idea of tempo runs is kind of like a misnomer when it comes to this type of high intensity training. Like you're training at your marathon pace or faster only 20% of the time that you make your mitochondrial gains in the, in, the, in the intervals in between on those days when you're running slow. That's when your body catches up. But those kind of like, I'm going to push it for 10 miles at like a, a, a medium pace it only causes damage within the muscles, and those types of tempo runs are very, very difficult to really uh, recover from. So for me, it's like last year, most of my miles were between seven and eight minutes, and my, quote, slow wreck days were like 8.15. That was a big mistake. Like my slow days when I felt wrecked should have been at 9, 9.30. I shouldn't have been embarrassed by what my my legion of like a hundred Strava friends was going to think. Um, my, my fast days, like I was doing eight by one mile at 5.30, 5.29. Um, I did one workout like that. I did like four by two miles at 11.15, 11.20, which is 5.40 pace. So effectively sort of like straddling what a marathon pace might be like. But I was just doing that like eight times one at like 5.40 pace, 5.30 pace. It wasn't, I, I didn't, have, but at the same time, like that could boomerang me. Now, I didn't know this until I had the experience myself. Like I wasn't really, I didn't have the, the faith in my coach then that I should have, where she was like, you do this eight by one mile workout at 5.30 when you're doing 70 to 80 slow miles a week, you'll be able to do 5.40 pace for 25 miles, 26 miles. I, 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 I didn't know, like mathematically, that, that doesn't make any sense. It's like you would think like I've got to run 20 miles at marathon pace. I've got to train at 5.30, 5.40 pace all the time. Whereas energetically, it's like, no, you've got that speed and more. 
you've got to like understand what it's like to run for three hours, three and a half hours. Who cares about their pace, the pace? Your mitochondria have to get stressed and your mitochondria have to know how to work at that stress level. And you can compound it when you're totally recovered into a two and a half hour effort where everything is cranking. Do you feel like you are coming to this realization now, but a lot of runners are sort of already there? Or do you know what I mean? Or do you feel like, look, we still as a community need to get much clearer on this? Well, well, well so the, the, this is the trick, right? And this has always been the case for those of us who are, who, are, who are not elite, that like the best people have always had the best coaching. At the same time, like those best people and their coaches aren't going to give away all their secrets. Um, so it's like Elliot Kipchoge is not on Strava. You know, he'll talk about his training, but he's not going to like give away all his secrets because it's just going to make his competitive life harder. Um, and obviously this is not a good example because nobody could catch him even if they trained at that level. <laughs> um, so the, every once in a while, you know, especially with social media, it's like you can follow a group like the Northern Arizona Elite or the, the Tin Man Elite and really get a, a kind of a flavor of their types of workouts like Northern Arizona elite is Scott Fobble, Coach Ben Rosario, um, Stephanie Bruce, Kellen Taylor. And like they, they did a workout last weekend, 12 times 1K, and then a 5K time trial. And they're not going at four-minute pace, but they're doing their 12 by 1, 1K repeats, very controlled, you know, probably sub-marathon pace. And then they're doing a 5K time trial at the end. So it's like, they're trying to build this idea of speed strength that when you're at your most exhausted level, can you pull out all the stops? It's not like doing a 5K when you're totally fresh because who cares? But when you're in your exhausted state, like you'd be at mile 22 or 23, can you pull out a stellar 5K to finish off? That's what they're training for. They're training for speed when you're in a state of total depletion and understanding what it's like to hit that level of speed. So in, in, in that sense, it's like those of us who are amateurs don't really have access to that information, which is the reason why like, you know, we should try to seek out coaches who do have access, who have run on those teams who are now coaching. And there's a bunch of them. Like I've got Patty Dillon, who's, who's in her 60s, but one of the best American marathoners of all time. And there's a bunch of people that aren't, that weren't at that professional level, but that trained at that professional level with great folks that are out there coaching, but they're not writing guides to marathoning. They're not writing the, the types of like, here's the, here's the secrets. Cause there, there are no secrets. There is no magic bullet. There is no pill. You know, you have to learn how to listen to yourself on a day-to-day -day basis. And you ideally have to have a coach, even at an amateur level that can help you on that day-to-day -day level. You talked a little bit ago about some personal goals and resolutions for 2020. I would like to hear more about those. The, 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 this, is, this is great. Like the, but my, my philosophy or my, like, <laughs> like, my like idea in life is that resolutions can be extraordinarily limiting just because of the expectations that are created. So there's an idea of like imagination. There's an idea of, of visualizing, of creating a, a lofty, almost unattainable goal. 
and saying, that's where I want to go. And I, I find that there is an incredible amount of, of value in that. But I mean, I, I, I've, I've, I've practiced a pretty, you know, at least dedicated spiritual life the last 20 years as folks out there who, who know me might know, like I'm, I'm celibate, I don't drink, um, I don't eat meat and I'm trying to, and I, I'm kind of in this like quasi monastic uh, spiritual group where, you know, although we live in the world, we're, we're trying our best to, to kind of a, achieve a, a very, very high level of discipline as outlined by our, our teacher, Sri Chinmoy. So th- that said, you know, I, I, I believe that, that there is a, a, an energy in the universe we, we call God. From the Eastern standpoint, we refer to it as a supreme, not masculine, not feminine, or both, or either, something infinite, something finite that we're all a part of that's all within us. I feel that there is this energy we call grace. There's this energy that we call compassion that we can achieve if we don't have any expectations. Anytime we have expectations, we, we place a sense of limitation, even if the expectations are lofty. We, we kind of cap what we think we're, uh, we're capable of. But if we work for the result, but we put the... We, we put the, the actual results in the lap of God, in the lap of the Supreme. If at the same time we, we, we pray to energies that are much greater than us, whether we call it Mother Earth or Father Sky or the Supreme, if we ask those energies to flow in and through us, then, oh my God, it's like our, our achievements will, could be, I should say, you know, far beyond our, our wildest dreams. Now it's, 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 it, it's a belief that these good energies out there want us to do better, that, they, they, that the goal of human life is this idea of self-transcendence, going beyond our limitations, destroying our limitations, achieving a very deep and abiding sense of peace, bliss, light, joy, that that is our destiny as, as human beings, that that is the ultimate human experience. The question then is, how do, I, how do we keep ourselves open to that? Number one, it's like acting from the heart, acting from a sense of, of feeling like we are already a part of that, that that is our birthright, that being our best self, achieving these lofty states of performance is something that we deserve, that belong to us. But number two, it's realizing that there is a force out there that wants to give us infinitely more than we could ever imagine. And the first step is dissolving the idea of having plans. Yes, we have to work. Yes, we have to have some idea of discipline, some idea of the pathway to get there, but that ultimately we need to learn to release ourselves from those expectations. I mean, you have plans, right? You're running Boston, that is your plan, but you will dissolve specific performance goals? Is that? Yeah, so I'll, I'll throw out two different words. Like the, there's an idea of inspiration and there's the idea of aspiration. Inspiration, is, is, it's very important. It's, it's kind of from the mental level of, of clarity and, and being excited and eager to take that first step. Aspiration comes from the heart. It's kind of like the burning spiritual desire to, to push ourselves and to kind of achieve a certain level of satisfaction. Aspiration is tied into the idea of devotion, where we live and we breathe our goal. We live and we, and we, and we breathe our journey. 
So it's not just like the momentary flash of inspiration, like, oh my God, that's a good idea. Or like, wow, that's really, really inspiring. And that's really kind of like thought provoking. It's more like I have to get to that goal. Otherwise, there's no point in my existence. That's aspiration. And so how do we develop that aspiration? How do we develop that devotion, that inner mounting cry towards our goal? And it, it doesn't come out of nowhere. It comes out of actually focusing on how to build that aspiration in our day-to-day life. And, and that's essentially, that's the crux of meditation. Meditation isn't just like, let's silence our mind and, and feel a state of absence. Let's actively and, and with great deep inner hunger Let's cry for the goals of the spiritual life. Let's try to bring more peace into our life, more love into our life, more joy into our life. Let's cry to a higher power to give us these things that we know we can't achieve on our own. And it's, it's an idea that's kind of absent from Western life, this idea of, of just extreme devotion, extreme heartfelt cry, um, whether that cry is for our, our, our children, for our loved ones, for our own personal success. The, the idea of devotion in sports, um, I, I think, is, is the crux of 3100 Run and Become. And I think it's the thing that is going to be the revelation in the next few decades of increasing sports performance in the West. Very interesting. And I hope you're right. I mean, I, I, I've seen it. It's like with, with, with Navajo, with... You know, Japanese monks, it's like the level of performance that, like, that they can achieve um, through this idea of running as prayer is incredible. Uh, and of, of course, in Indian country in the U.S., there's been kind of a decimation on the, on the socioeconomic side, but the, they're beginning to get their foothold um, and understanding how to exist within like a Western capitalist framework. And you'll see you know, there's organizations like like Wings of America, a native NGO based in Santa Fe that's working on reviving Indian traditions of running, but also recruiting the next generation of superstar runners. Um, there's, a, there, there, there's a whole crop of native runners that are just hitting D1 uh, college circuits that are more competitive than most American runners because they're not doing it to destroy competition. They're doing it to get closer to God. And they are. I mean, they are. It's like if you look at America's best marathoner, Ryan Hall, he's also, you know, America's, you know, the fastest American time ever, 204 and change. Um, He's also outwardly and more overtly the most religious American marathoner. People might have problems with the overtness of, of, of his Christianity, but you look at Elliot Kipchoge, who's not shy about talking about God and faith. And you go like, there's something there. There's something about trying to use marathoning as a way to get closer to God. And can you do that? And what does that feel like? I mean, it never hurts to try, but if you try it, what does that feel like? And can your goals actually be goals fueled by divinity um, and, and much less by ego? They're all questions. I mean, and, and, and we've seen some of the best runners actually running with these motivations. It hasn't quite filtered into the pro realm and not even into the amateur realm at all. But that's the crux of the 3,100-mile race. You can't do 60 miles a day for 52 days with, like, mental willpower. You have to find happiness. And it would sound crazy if I told you that that happiness exists from the spiritual aspect. 
it exists and using running as a, as a pathway to enlightenment. Aside from the Boston Marathon in 2020, what other current projects are you working on? I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about a, a film I'm developing right now, um, a narrative film, a scripted film based on my coach, Patty Dillon. She ran as Patty Catalano. She is probably the best American marathoner that nobody remembers. In, in her words, in 1976, she was a, a, a very unhappy, very unhealthy 23-year-old took up running on a lark. She was Native American, um, based in Boston. But across the next five years, she ended up breaking and holding every American record from the 10K to the marathon. She was second in Boston in 1980, 81, 82. Uh, she was Nike's first female-sponsored athlete. But, you know, kind of reflecting on the the kind of revelations and, and turmoil in the uh, professional running culture in America, particularly on the female side, the exploitation um, that pro athletes are revealing to have experienced, in this case, you know, at Nike with, with, with the Oregon Project. Um, Patty was the lab rat, the kind of test case for what a patriarchal, um, masculine-driven industry would kind of impose on a female runner. So when, 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 and I'm speaking for Patty, which is kind of unfair, but when, when Patty and I have talked about the, the issues that have kind of come out around um, female Nike-sponsored runners now, Patty's response is, this is not news. You know, this has been going on since 1979 when she signed. Weirdly enough, the, the, sa- the same people that signed Patty are now C-level uh, executives at Nike, and that they, they've carried that culture um, for the last 40 years. So the, the, the idea isn't like, oh my God, this is happening now. The idea is like, this has happened for 40 years and mainstream media is now finally realizing that it's happening. So P- Patty experienced every level of exploitation as a female, as a runner um, in this running boom, but she also achieved a level of success that frankly hasn't been replicated by any American runner across that span of, of distances on, on, on the female side since then. Her story is revelatory. Her story speaks to the deep spirituality of Native American running traditions. And a person who tries, you know, successfully and unsuccessfully to run with that attitude at the highest levels of professional running. So that, that script's almost done. Hopefully we'll begin to, I mean, the movie industry has a long timeline. Hopefully we'll begin to film it in uh, 2021 and it'll be out sometime in the next few years. Wow. And and just to be clear, I mean, you yourself are wrapping up the writing on this or are you working with, do you have co-writers on this? Me and my, my film partner from the last two films I've done, um, we've been writing this for about a year and it's a kind of complicated story where you're trying to do something that's in the weeds on running, but it's for a mass audience. You know, we're also, you know, we, we've got no right as non-natives to kind of write a native woman's story, but Patty is, a, an, is an integral part of the process. And as a documentary filmmaker, you know, all I really need to do with this film is tell the truth. You know, we've had, we've done 70, 80, 90 hours of interviews with Patty. We have all the details and it's, 
like a documentary film where we've got this content and we're just forming it into entertainment. Um, so that said, it'll obviously star a Native American actress. You know, there's a lot of Native American parts. Um, it'll be an in- incredible revelation, not just on the pro running side of things, but on the kind of traditional side of running to show that, you know, pros at Patty's level have run with five, 6,000 years of tradition in their hearts in a way that most of us, you know, don't have when we run or we race. I can't wait to see this. I guess I have to wait till 2021, at least 21, 2022. Well, it'll be fun. You know, people can follow Patty on Instagram. I think her Instagram is Patty, Patty Speaks. Um, but, you know, even if you Google Patty Catalano, um, that, that was her, her, her last name when she was running, you'll see images of just excellence and ferocity um, and beauty. And we're trying to kind of like pull that into running culture now because I think people are, 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 are ready for that perspective. Hmm. I should let you get going, Sanjay, but it is always such a pleasure to get a chance to have a conversation with you and catch up with you. And um, it's remarkable. You, uh, you are a remarkable person. I am eternally grateful to Brendan Leonard uh, for introducing us. And um, I feel like I'm cheating on Brendan that we're having this conversation without him. But uh, he is away, and uh, I will beg for his forgiveness later. The last thing I want to say is, you know, I, I'm still worried about this, this uh, water cup training for you you know that you were just knocking all the water cups out of people's hands so if you need me you know if you need me to come back to new york and you know just hold water cups for you while you practice just grabbing them out of my hand i'm happy you know we can set this up i'm happy to come down that that would be great it's like <laughs> since we're doing it in in new york if we do it in williamsburg you can uh, you can hand me craft lattes as well <laughs> Well, yeah, exactly. And, you know, you just run like a hundred feet that way, grab the cup and then just, I'll get another cup and then you just run back. And I figure if we did that, you know, for like 30 minutes you know, <laughs> for a few times a week, we'll, we'll start to dial you in on this whole, you know, water cup grabbing thing. I mean, it's the dumbest thing in the world that, <laughs> that my, my, I, 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 I had a, a poor physical experience because I didn't know how to drink from a Dixie cup. It's, it's so dumb. Um, it's definitely the dumbest thing you've sort of done or said in this entire conversation. So I, I think that's a, it makes me feel better about myself leaving it on that note, I think. Um, but once again, you have given us much to consider and chew on. And um, I can't, I just can't wait. I can't, this project, the film project you're working on uh, just sounds fantastic. And I can't wait to hear how your prep for Boston goes and um, these very particular types of, um, well, let's call them questions that you are exploring and uh, checking out. It's, it's fantastic. It's a delight to be able to catch up with you again today. Oh, thanks so much for everything, Jonathan. And if I don't talk to you before then, you know, let's make sure that we do this again uh, January 3rd, 2030. <laughs> Exactly. Well, definitely. Uh, definitely we'll need to put that one on the books. So just pencil that in for now. And uh, But yes, uh, hopefully we'll be talking much sooner than that. 
I hope so. <laughs> All right, Sanjay. Thanks, Jonathan. Take care. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Sanjay for the conversation. And if you haven't done so already, I would highly encourage you to check out his film, 3100 Run and Become. And you can find the film on iTunes or Google Play or Amazon.com. I also want to thank Luke Alley for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then we would encourage you to subscribe to Off the Couch, tell your friends about the show, and do us the favor of taking just a second to leave us a nice little rating in iTunes. Until next time, keep moving forward, and we will talk to you again next week.